This is my father's world. As she was playing, I opened up the hymnal. We don't often use our hymnals. We have a lot of technology. I don't often open up the hymnal. And I was reading some of the words, this is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings, the music of the spheres. This is my father's world, and I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand the wonders wrought. That's a very beautiful and poetic way of saying that God is in control. That is our testimony here at Pathways Baptist Church. We believe in the one true living God. We preach from his word. We know that even though things around us may look crazy, and often they are, that our God is still in control. That nothing happens that he does not know about. Not a tear falls that will be wasted. There's not a hurt that he doesn't know. And my prayer for you this morning is that if you do not know that God, that you begin to think about and consider who he may be to you. And if you are one that has put your life and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that in these days, during these times, press in to him. Press in. He's our hope. Our hope is not in man. Our hope is in Christ. With all that said, I want to encourage your hearts this morning. My name is Paula Mutsos. I'm the discipleship pastor here. And I want you to know that I got here really early and I set the table for you here. Today's communion. And I wanted it to be a little more uh, special. The rite of communion is already a special event. It's where our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has commanded us to obey and, and remember his sacrifice of his body and his blood until he returns again. So a little later on in the service, we will be doing that. And if you are a guest with us here at Pathways, I'll have you know that we have an open communion here. If you are a member of the body of Christ, it does not matter if you're a member of Pathways Baptist Church or not, we invite you to take communion with us. If that is not some, a decision that you've made as of yet, if that is something that you're still thinking through, we would ask you to use that time when we celebrate the elements to reflect on your relationship with Christ. The reason I'm up here and I'm walking around the table, it reminds me of my background and of my mom and dad. My mom and dad are from Alabama. I'm from Washington, but my folks are from the great state of Alabama. How many people have been down to Alabama? You know Alabama? Oh, gosh, there's a lot of folks that know the great state of. Okay. 
Well, Alabama is where my mom is from. She's from Huntsville, which is northern Alabama. My dad is from Marion, Alabama, which is so far down into Alabama that you can actually walk to Mississippi from where he's from. It's a very small town, but that's from where they hail. And down in the south, um, hospitality, setting a table is a really big, hairy deal. It's an important thing, extending southern hospitality. You do not go to my grandmother's house. You do not go to any of my aunts and uncles' house. You do not go and travel in the south without stopping and having a meal. It does not matter that you just had breakfast. If you go over my aunt's house, you better have a meal again. They, uh, I come from a long line of cooks, in fact, uh, my mom was, now I'm going to date myself by telling you this, my mom was a home economics teacher. Does anybody know what that is in this audience? Yeah, everybody who's old like me knows that. Okay, so this side of the room didn't know that. This is where all the young folks are. A home economics teacher, and I see y'all over there. You just didn't want to raise your hand, but anyway. Um, a home economics teacher is a teacher that taught uh, sewing and cooking and that sort of thing, the, the arts of, of being able to care and take for a house. I don't know why they stopped teaching it because those are the type of things that are important. I happen to know that it costs about six or seven dollars to get a pa or pants hemmed at the cleaners and it would be certainly easier for you to just do it for yourself at home, but you know, that's no commentary on you, Jason, that's okay. <laughs> So anyway, my mom was a home economics teacher, and so it was very important for her uh, to teach us how to cook. And um, a lot of you know, in my background, um, I was a professional chef. So learning the art of hospitality, again, was very important. I had an aunt, quick story, who uh, my mom was mentored by, my aunt Eliza. And my Aunt Eliza was the type of woman, her husband was dean of uh, business and finance at Alabama A&M University in Huntsville. And my aunt, I, I promise you, I could roll up to my aunt's house at any time with a car full of people, with two cars full of people, and my aunt could have a buffet laid out within 30 minutes of us coming into the house. Her house, was always ready to entertain and to serve because uh, she was the wife of a dean. And so she had in her family, I guess that would have been a, uh, considered the family room at that time, it was always set for 50 people. There were card tables, there were chairs. It was always set for 50. And I will tell you, when I say that she could pull out a meal, I'm not talking about like chips and dip. I'm telling you my aunt could throw out like a Thanksgiving dinner turkey. I don't know where it would come from. I don't know how she would have a roast turkey ready to go, but she would, and at all times she was ready. So that's a little bit about my family and, and my background. The reason I tell you about that this morning and the reason that I have set this table for you today is because we are going to continue in our series of the greatest of all times. Has that been a blessing to you guys this summer? Have you enjoyed? Can we give the Lord, can I get some feedback? Have we liked it? Thank you. 
I think the Lord has been gracious. We've uh, been able to do character studies of uh, different people, and we've used the expression goat, the greatest of all times. Today we're going to continue with that line of thought, but I'd like to talk about the greatest dinner guests of all times, and we are going to use um, Brother Luke. We are going to be in the 14th chapter of Luke. So, if you will follow with me, I will tell you about the background of this story, and, and then we will move into where we're studying today. Now, every time I get up here, I tell you guys how much I love the Bible. And I don't say it in a pious, oh, I love the Bible and God's Word. I do. But I love the Bible because it is just so ridiculously clear and so the stories are just unbelievable. But I guess people have never changed. People are the same. They've always been the same. But the stories in the Bible, I'm telling you, it is better than any soap opera. You turn off that mess on TV and, and read the Bible because it is all here. The drama, the everything is right here. And this story today is absolutely no different. So I'm going to set it up for you. It starts in uh, Luke 14. Chapter 1, Dr. Lutz states that on the Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Okay. You're like, so what? That's not a big deal. That's just the beginning of a story. Okay. When you dig into this one sentence, it gives you a lot of background in terms of what was happening in that moment. So, permit me to uh, speak into it for just a moment. Our Lord Jesus Christ was a very um, interesting man. <laughs> he was the guest and the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And we all read that. We've read that a million times. We know that. This particular time, he was the guest, the house guest, of a very prominent Pharisee. So we are going to assume that this man, if he was prominent, he was a Pharisee, he was a teacher of the law, he was the host, he was hosting this event. This was a who's who type of event to be in. It also tells us very carefully that Jesus was being watched. He was being carefully watched. So, this prominent, influential man, the Pharisees, invited Jesus over for dinner. Now, that should give you pause right there, because was Jesus and the Pharisees, were they friends? Of course not. They didn't like him, but they've invited him over to dinner. And why? So they could carefully watch him. The Greek word there, the word that was used means to watch closely, to observe, uh, 
it almost means to lie in wait for. But as often as happens in these type of encounters with Jesus, the tables got turned around and they thought that they would be watching him, but he ended up watching and exposing them. So, Jesus is at the home of this leader and it's the Sabbath. Now, scholars say that that means that it was probably Friday evening. It was after sundown. Now, if you are familiar at all with um, rabbinic law, mosaic law, uh, Jewish people do not do anything. There is no work done after sundown on the Sabbath. You don't work. So that means everything you do has to be done prior to sundown. Now, some scholars believe that this whole thing was a setup from the beginning, and it probably was. The Pharisees wanted to set up Jesus to see if he was going to break the law. So, Jesus comes up, he walks into the house, and the very, very first thing that Jesus sees is a man standing near the door right in front of him, and he has a condition that's called dropsy. Dropsy uh, is an old word. Um, I guess the more modern medical term would be edema, which would be a swelling of the body and of the joints. Generally, if a person has um, congestive heart failure or kidney or liver disease, it causes swelling, so edema is, is one of those things. So that's what they, they think that this man had. Now, why am I telling you that? It would have been more than a little strange for the head Pharisee to have a man in his home that was ill, that had a disease, because the Pharisees, above all, did not ever want to be contaminated or near a person with a disease, because if they were... Um, to catch whatever the person had, then they would not be able to perform their duties and their rituals in the temple. So to have someone in your home that had that type of disease was strange. And to have him at the front door was even stranger. Scholars believe, and I believe, that he was a plant, if you will. He was there to see if Jesus would break the law by healing this man on the Sabbath. So, Jesus walks in. He sees this man. He's suffering. Now, Jesus could have been a polite house guest and not uh, wanted to engage the Pharisees at that time. He could have said, okay, well, I'll you know, come back tomorrow evening after sundown and I'll heal you. He could have avoided confrontation by doing that. But of course, Jesus didn't do that. He healed the man right there. And before anybody could say anything, he asked them a question. If one of you has a son or an ox that fell into a well on the Sabbath, will you not pull him out immediately? But of course, the teachers of the law had nothing to say. 
Now, if that wasn't enough of a performance for one day, you would have thought that Jesus would have went on and sat down after that. It certainly was not, because he then went on to rebuke the dinner guests. As he was standing there and after he healed the man, he happened to notice that as people were coming around the table, they were kind of jockeying for position. Now, you have to imagine, it's a, it's a big table, this is a large feast, and there were no place cards to tell people where to sit down or anything like that. But he noticed that people were jockeying for position to have the best seats, the prominent seats. Because in that culture, the closer you sat to the host meant the more prominent your position was. So the next thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth is, you know, whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. But whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. Now, his guests knew exactly what they were saying, what he was saying. And while their mouths were still wide open, dropped down to, to the ground, he then turns to his host and says, you know what, you've invited the wrong people to this dinner. Don't invite relatives or the rich or people that can do something for you, you are to invite the poor. You are to invite the sick. You are to invite people that can do nothing for you, and in that way you will be blessed. Okay, so now Jesus has made everybody mad. That's who he was. And that starts the story that we're going to be into today. So after Jesus has said all of this, he's made everybody mad. You know, there's always one person who wants to try to break the tension and make everybody feel better and kind of smooth everything over. So one guy decides he's going to jump up. Now, me, I would not have said anything because Jesus was reading people for points. Anybody who was, he was taking all comers that night. I would have stayed and not said a word, but this guy felt like, okay, I'm going to smooth this over and try to make it better. So he jumps up and says, everyone, um, all that come, I'm sorry, blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he said it in kind of a pious way. And Jesus turned around and started this story, the story of the great banquet. Starting at verse 16, Jesus replied that a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. Now, as I said, back in uh, ancient times, this one sentence is pregnant with a lot of meanings. It was a great banquet, it was a big feast. And so that means that in his story, a lot of people were there. Verse 17, he says, And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, for now everything is ready. Now, while that might seem strange in light of our customs in today's world, in the first century, people were often issued two invitations. You were issued an initial invitation, which was kind of like a save the date. 
Then you were actually given an invitation when the food was actually ready. Your host would send a word that you could now come. Now, because scripture says that this was a big feast, the RSVP would have been very, very important because, of course, as anybody knows who ever has hosted a dinner party, you got to know how many people you're preparing for. But you also have to remember in this day and age, this was not a let me run to Whole Foods, Safeway, Aldi's, wherever you shop and get the food. To prepare a banquet for a large number of people took a lot of preparation. Just to give you a little example, some of the things that you would have to think about if you were preparing food for a, a large, for a party back then, is that it would take one chicken to feed two or four people. You'd need a duck to feed five to eight. A baby goat would feed 10 to 15. A sheep, 15 to 35. Calf, 35 to 70. In our passage, Jesus is saying that it was a large feast with many guests. So, you've got to imagine what it would have taken to prepare the meat and the vegetables and all the things that you had to do. You couldn't just turn on the water. There was no water. There was no plumbing. You had to get water. It was a big deal to have people to come over to prepare for, to, to entertain. So, to not accept an invitation would be a humongous breach of etiquette. Your social standing in the first century would have come from who you knew, just like today, where you were invited. Your life was wrapped up in your peers and in what they thought of you. So, the scripture goes on to say in this story that everyone who he invited to this banquet rejected the invitation. And all the excuses seem to be pretty lame. The first person said that he had to go out and buy a field and expect it. Well, that's kind of silly because nobody buys a field sight unseen. Second person gave the excuse that um, he had just bought five pairs of oxen and he had to try them out. So that's why he couldn't come to the party. Well, anybody who had 10 ox was wealthy. Last guy said, well, I can't come because I'm getting married. Now, who gets married just at the last minute? You know if you're getting married. You're going to tell a person at the time of the invitation and make your excuses then. It's not the time to back out at the last moment. So all the invitations were rejected. All this food had been prepared. The table was set. It was time to eat. And nobody was going to come. Who knows? Maybe the townspeople were mad at the host. Maybe he had done something to... Um, be shunned in this way, but it was certainly, in Jesus' example, a situation where the host was being publicly humiliated by all of his friends. So naturally, Jesus goes on to say 
that the owner became angry. And he had every right to be angry because they had refused his invitation. So the owner goes out and says, I want you to go into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, bring in the cripple, bring in the blind. You can't blame him for being angry. He wanted his table to be filled. But to have the poor and the blind and the lame come to your house, well, that would be inviting the lower classes. That would be social suicide, if you will. But actually, it was a defiant act. It wasn't a desperate act, but it was a defiant act. It was kind of like, you know what, I'll show these people. My table is going to be filled. The host was determined. But if you look, the people that the owner invited were the poor, the cripple, the blind, and the lame. Those are exactly the same people that Jesus said that the host should have invited that evening to his party. As we go on in the text, the servant knows his master and has anticipated his command and says, Sir, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant to go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. So we see here that in the first sweep, the servants were told to go to the main streets and to the public squares. Now he's saying that I want you to go out into the rural towns, into the roads and the highways. What's interesting about that is that in the city, you may have poor people, indigent people, but out in the country, out in the rural areas away from the city, in those times, that's where the people who were shunned and unwelcomed would have lived. It's like that in Greece, where my husband is from. Out in the outskirts, they have communities of people, they call them gypsies, that live. And they're the undesirables, the unwashed, the ones that decent people wouldn't be around. These are the type of people that would have been very uncomfortable at a rich man's table. They would have felt very socially out of place. But the rich man, nevertheless, has instructed the servants not to take no for an answer, to fill his table, to bring these people to his home, because he was not going to be made a fool of. So the last line of the parable comes in verse 14, 24. Jesus closes it in kind of a curious way. It's almost like he switches tenses and he's speaking the words of the host himself. And he says, I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And it was a sentence that was filled with hurt and anger at rejection. And it was a resolution not to give in to a social slight but as we read and almost hear the voice of the father, the father being rejected by 
his rebellious children. So, okay, what does all this mean? We know that um, the Bible is God's word, and we know that it is true, but we also know that the Bible speaks in different genres. It speaks in poems, speaks in history, and this is a parable, which is an allegory or a metaphor. So that means that the characters and the places and all are used to deliver a broader message. So we have to be careful when we interpret an allegory because everything doesn't transfer word to word. But if I were to give you an overview of this parable, I would say that in the story, the host is God the Father, inviting his people, Israel, to the messianic banquet in the kingdom of God. The rich and the social elite who rejected the invitation at the last minute are the Pharisees and the Jews of the time. They're hard-hearted. They had already begun to plot against Jesus, and they were going to render the ultimate insult to him by having him executed as a common criminal. I would think in this story that the poor and the downtrodden are the common people considered unclean by the Pharisees. Perhaps those inside the town are Jews, while those in the outlying areas, the unmentionables, the defiled, would be the Gentiles, which would be us. So, as I meditate on this parable, there are two things that I would observe. The first is that we all feel badly when we're rejected. Rejection hurts. But what about the father? Think about his grief and broken heart. Think of his anger and his mercy. I recall the verse in the beginning of John's gospel that expresses this. It says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus also warns us. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it's going to love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute, persecute you. If they obey my teachings, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. This parable is bittersweet because it, it's a reminder of the rejection, but also the mercy of God. The second theme that I would see in here is God's grace. Those who are not worthy 
are invited to come to the host table. The poor, the lame, the cripple are now invited. That's you and me. We are unworthy to eat at the host table, but we've been invited and cleansed. How true it is, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. This is God's mercy, pure and simple. You know, I started this by talking about my family and how um, I was raised in a family that where hospitality was uh, a very front burner thing. And I've tried to continue that into my own life. In fact, I married someone who is a chef as well. Go ahead, ladies. I'll give you one second to covet that. He sings, he's cute, and he cooks. Yay me. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I remember one of our first purchases was a dining room table. And um, it was a glass table, and it sat about eight people around it, and that thing was hard to keep clean because it was all glass and fingerprints stayed around it. But when I think about, you know, our dining room table, I think about all the prayers. I think about all the history. I think about all of the young people who've come to our home and we've tried to mentor. I think of some of the uh, important people of the world that we've had the opportunity to host. I think of the stories, mostly, around that table. And I have come to believe that the kitchen table or the dining room table is more than a place where you share food. It's where you do life. It's where we bond. I almost think that food and the table is probably one of my love languages. I tend to love people through food. And it's not because I, you know, want to see everybody eat all the time. Okay, well, I do because I like to eat. But it's more about, for me, what the table does. When you're around the table and you're with your folks, you're with your family, you're with your friends, you're with your loved ones, I believe it's in those moments when we can connect deeply, heart to heart. And I think that that was Jesus' way too because if you think about it, whenever he had something really important that he wanted to share, it was always around food. It was always around a table. 
Remember the 5,000 that he fed with just a few fish and a few loaves. Remember the Last Supper when he was trying to explain to his followers that he was going to be killed and, and all of the things that were going to happen later on in that evening. It was always done around a table. The table for Jesus was a place of blessing. It was a place of connection. It was a place of brokenness. Scholar N.T. Wright, one of my favorite scholars, says that um, when Jesus wanted to explain something to his disciples, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. And I'm convinced that it is an important spiritual discipline. I know it's not listed in all the spiritual disciplines, but I think in this fast-paced, high-tech, selfish, me-first world that we could learn a lot by just sitting down, slowing down, looking each other in the eye around a table. The table is a place of connection. The table is also a place of blessing. It's a place to remember the blessings of God. One of the ancient prayers of the church says, Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, for you give us food to sustain our lives and make our hearts glad. We really need to recover the importance of gathering people around our tables as a gift. table is also a place of brokenness. And I thank God for that because it's a place where all of us, where sinners can find connection and belonging. Despite our best intentions, we are all going to stumble. We're all going to fall. And we desperately need people who will sit down with us and listen to us and help center us and bring us back. That's what spiritual friendships do. That's what believers do for each other. That's how we can encourage each other on the road called life. The table is a place of giveness. I know that's not really a word, but it sounded good at the time when I was writing. It's a place of giveness. We are people who are blessed and broken and have been given to. And the latter aspect identifies and reminds us that we are God's people and we are given to the world. We are called to represent him. I loved the prayer that Jonathan prayed that the churches uh, surround the community in El Paso, that the churches be Christ's hands and feet for those people. That is what our calling is. We are called to give back what, that which we have received. 
And I'm convinced that the dinner table is probably one of the most missional places in our lives. You know, I would think that perhaps before we invite people to church or before we try to hit them with the four spiritual laws or however we go about that, perhaps we should just invite them to a simple meal first. I think that that was one of the most distinctive aspects of Jesus' ministry. But the last thing that the table represents, it's the coming feast. As we get ready to participate in communion, this table is about what has already happened, but it's what also will happen. It's about the sacrifice that was made on the cross over 2,000 years ago, but it also heralds and reminds us of what is to come. The word says that one day we will all, the multitudes, will gather around the great table and we will feast and there will be no more tears and there will be no more pain and we will be with the Lord forever.